Thanks for listening and welcome to Rewrite the Rules, the podcast that shows you there is no one right way to live your life. I'm your host, Alex Starr, and I want to expose you to new lifestyles, mindsets, and stories of adventure from around the globe. So pour your favorite drink, roll up a joint, and let's get going. Hello, beautiful people, and happy spring. What a beautiful time of year. Today's podcast I am very excited about, just like the rest of them, but this one takes a little bit of a different turn, and I actually split it into two parts because it's such a deep, heavy topic um, with this professor that I cannot process it past 25 minutes. I did my best during the podcast, um, but I think it's better split into two. So today's is Donald Hoffman, who's a professor of cognitive science. Um, at the University of California, Irvine, and we go into the case against reality. He has a TED Talk that has amassed over 3 million views that is titled, uh, Do We See Reality? And then he also has multiple articles in The Atlantic and other publications called The Case Against Reality, which basically is stating that we as humans do not see the full reality spectrum. In the same way we do not see the entire light spectrum, we are not seeing reality for what it truly is. We are seeing what makes it fit for us to reproduce. That is just the surface of what we go into. Um, In these first 25 minutes, uh, we're going to be talking about how we are maybe moving from an individual intelligence to a collective. Um, How can we enter into actual reality through things like meditation, prayer, hallucinogens? Uh, What does reality actually look like? Are we starting to create that through virtual reality techniques? Tons of interesting stuff. Uh, very fascinating and kind of a real good way to start if you literally rewriting the rules to our perceptions. Uh, next week, we're going to jump into uh, different things such as anxiety, um, you know, worry, and where does that come from from an evolutionary standpoint? How has the professor used hallucinogens to advance his own perceptions? Uh, just really interesting stuff. I'm glad you guys are tuning in. This is going to be the first 25 minutes. Next Tuesday, I will be publishing the second part so make sure and tune in to that as always click subscribe if you're enjoying these shows go to alexstar.com or leave me a review on itunes it would be much appreciated you can also sign up for the email list and all that goody goody stuff and so i will see you guys next tuesday enjoy this show with donald hoffman So you're a professor, Don Huffman, of uh, cognitive science at UC Irvine. Um, yes. And I read your article in The Atlantic is where um, I initially heard about your theories and everything. Um, yeah. So can you briefly explain for someone who has no idea what's going on about your um, your theories about reality, can you explain the evolutionary game theory for a new listener? Yes. So – I've been interested in the nature of perception for for quite a few years. How do we, you know, why do we see what we see in you know 3D objects and space and time and colors and shapes and so forth? And I I began to ask the question from the point of view of evolution. Um, if you know our perceptual systems evolved by natural selection, um, would they evolve to show us reality as it is? Was the technical question I was asking, or would they evolve to show us something different? And so I decided to test this out, and with with some graduate students, we did evolutionary simulations in which we could have um, artificial worlds, 
hundreds of thousands of them that we created randomly. And different um, organisms in those worlds, some organisms that see all of the reality in the world and others that see none of the reality but are just tuned to the, the fitness functions that are, you know, the evolutionary fitness functions that so they're sort of like the, the, the way you get points in the game uh, yeah. of evolution. And then in other organisms that, you know, saw some of reality and, and, and some of the fitness and so forth. And we let them c compete. And we discovered uh, that the organisms that see reality as it is are, are never more fit, never get more points uh, on average than the organisms that see none of reality as it is and are just tuned to the fitness functions. And, and then since then, um, uh, working with a mathematician, uh, Chaitan Prakash, uh, I, I conjectured a theorem and he proved it, that it's in fact the case for generic worlds. So not just the worlds we did in our simulations, but for any generic world and for any generic fitness function, the, the uh, probability is zero that an organism um, that sees reality as it is um, can ever outcompete an organism that sees none of reality and is just tuned to fitness. So this is a bit surprising it, it, yeah. in a way um, because it, – well, it's surprising to our intuitions because we think that you know we see a, a spoon on a table <clears throat> that we're seeing a description of an objective reality that would be there even if no one ever observed it. But <clears throat> what this is saying from the point of view of evolution is, well, we're not evolved to see the truth because there really aren't selection pressures to see the truth. We're evolved to have perceptions that guide us to act in ways that keep us alive long enough to reproduce. So when you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, you'd say, well, of course. Of course our perceptions are there to keep us alive, keep us safe, and allow us to reproduce. But then most of us take the next step and say, but the way they do it is to show us the truth. And what we've discovered is no – <laughs> That's not the way they do it. In fact, the, the metaphor that I like to use um, is the desktop metaphor, yes. the desktop interface on your, on your computer. Yeah, that's a great metaphor, yeah. And I think it really helps to bring – because otherwise, this idea just seems like nonsense. I mean, you know, how could it possibly be helpful not to see reality as it is, not to see the truth? How could that possibly be helpful? So if you think about the desktop you know, of your computer and suppose you're writing an email – and the icon for the file you're writing is you know, blue and rectangular and in the middle of your screen. Does that mean that the email itself in your computer is blue and rectangular and in the middle of the computer? Well, no, that's silly. I mean, anybody who thought that is just naive about how computers work and what the interface is all about. The, the interface is not all about showing you the reality of the computer. In fact, to the contrary, it's there to hide that reality, right? If right. if you had to see the voltages and magnetic fields and diodes and resistors, well, good luck trying to craft that email. You'll never get it done. So the point of the interface in part is to hide the reality so you don't have to deal with that complexity because it's irrelevant to know it, to get your email written. It's to hide that complexity and give you eye candy, little symbols that you can use <laughs> to get the job done. And that's what evolution has done for us. Um, space and time, 3D space as you perceive it, is your desktop. And physical objects like the spoon and the table are just icons in the desktop. And the whole desktop, the, the whole perception that we have of space and time and objects is not there to show us reality. It's in fact 
useful because it hides all of reality and it just gives us information about what we need to do to stay alive. That's yeah, that's fascinating. You know, it's a kind of a paradox in my head because from a Darwinian point of view, it does make perfect sense. Why would we need to hear the lower decibels of whales, you know, when that has no correlation to our fitness and our ability to reproduce? It makes perfect sense. On the other hand, in my mind, I say, I, I don't, this, I, it's very hard to wrap my concept around. If this isn't reality, then what is it? In your opinion, if you were to put on virtual reality goggles, which is kind of ironic, but if you were to put on VR goggles that were to show you, Don, reality as it actually is, what do you think it looks like? Well, it probably doesn't look like anything. I mean, probably the very notion of a space and a time and a visual of shapes and colors and so forth is probably just the wrong language to describe that reality. Um, so I'll just mention, though, because you, you, you do point out that it's really hard for people to, to wrap their heads around this. Um, many physicists are coming to the same point of view. So there's a physicist, uh, Nima Arkani Hamed, was at Harvard, now he's at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Um, and you can look him up online. He's got lectures for uh, popular audiences entitled Space Time is Doomed. And, and the idea is that, that physicists are recognizing that we believed, Einstein believed, that space and time or their union in space time mm -hmm. um, is part of the fundamental nature of reality. And in some sense, the job of physics is to describe things as they happen in space time. That's the job of physics. But now physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed are saying, uh, whoops, uh, the, the newest results in theoretical physics and experiments are contradicting that. Space time is doomed and we don't know what to replace it with yet. So some theorists like um, Seth Lloyd at MIT is proposing that there's a realm of just abstract information processing, quantum information processing. It's not in space and time. These aren't little computers inside space and time. They're just abstract um, quantum logic gates and, and quantum bits. And space-time is somehow, he thinks, generated from them. Now, I myself am, am working on a theory um, that's very, very different, although you know, it may end up being a, you know, a mathematical uh, variation of that. And, and my idea is that well, I've been very interested in conscious experiences, very, very simple conscious experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, the taste, my experience of the taste of chocolate or my experience of the smell of a rose, things like that. And, you know, I'm not saying that those experiences are reporting reality as it is, but they are a reality in the sense that they are my experiences. Right. Yeah. So, so just like your desktop is, is a desktop. So it, you know, it's not telling you the truth of, of the computer itself. Nevertheless, it is its own reality. I mean, it is the desktop reality. Right. It's just that we mistook that desktop. We, you know, we don't want to mistake that desktop reality for the diodes and resistors that are behind it. Um, and so th that's the idea that I'm pursuing. There is this reality of my conscious experiences. And of course, I could even be wrong about that. I mean, as a scientist, I have to question everything. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, it, it's, it, I mean, it's possible that, you know, I'm even um, deluded or, you know, misguided about thinking that I have, you know, experiences of pain and, and smells of roses and so forth. But if I'm, if uh, my feeling is if I'm wrong about that, well, you know, then um, 
it, the game is up. I might as well just you know, eat, drink, and be merry because there's I'm not going to make any progress anymore. <laughs> so so I'm going to start with you know the idea that there are conscious experiences, and can I get a mathematical model of conscious experiences on their own terms? And then turn that into a model of a reality of what I call conscious agents. You know, so these are just agents that have their own conscious experiences. And can I use that in a mathematically precise way to get a theory of reality that I can then use to derive modern physics and space-time as a special case? So that's the direction I'm going. Now, it, we'll see. It's, um, the, the reason I'm taking that direction is I've been very interested for a long time in the mind-body problem. How... Are your conscious experiences, like your headaches and the, you know your experience of colors and and motion and shapes, how is that related to activity in your brain? Yeah. And uh, the standard view in my field and the the view that I espoused um, until I ran into <laughs> serious troubles with it is that the brain somehow causes these conscious experiences. Brain activity causes them, and there are many, many correlations between brain activity and conscious experiences. I mean, I can put an a, a, a magnet close to area V4 of the of, of the cortex of the brain, just and just stick it on your skull and inhibit this area of V4, and you lose all color experience in the right, in half of the visual world. Wow. So if you do it in your left hemisphere, you lose color experience in the right visual world, and you pull the magnet away, and your color experience comes back. So there's clear correlations and there's dozens perhaps hundreds of these correlations between brain activity on the one hand and conscious experiences yeah the assumption in my field and assumption i used to make is that the brain somehow causes these conscious experiences but if space and time are doomed as arkani hamed says and therefore physical objects with them because when you take space and time away you take everything that's in space and time away right. as a part of fundamental reality so that you're, you're taking neurons away you're taking the brain away as an aspect of fundamental reality that's going to be part of the explanation of why we have conscious experiences so we have to rethink the mind body problem from from the ground up you know uh, of course we're going to use all the neuroscience we can and and do more neuroscience to understand their correlations but our theories are going to have to be more sophisticated than saying the that neurons cause conscious experiences because neurons don't exist outside of our perceptions. Right. They are symbols of our perceptions. <laughs> yeah, so, like, so we have to rethink uh, the whole thing. So it, it really is an Alice in Wonderland kind of definitely you know, kind of thing at the start. But you know, it's not impossible to to sort things out. It's just that a lot of preconceptions that we have uh, that we hold very dearly that even Einstein held very dearly. I mean, he could never walk away from space time. Right. Throughout his whole life, he, he, he was sure that space-time was the ultimate nature of reality and that physics' job was to describe things in space-time. Uh, he was wrong, and physicists now believe that that's wrong, and they're scurrying to figure out the right new framework to, to put behind space-time and hopefully to get space-time emerging as you know, uh, an after, you know, some, some product of this more deeper reality. And in, in relation to that, that deeper reality you're talking about, um, you know, in Buddhism, they talk about the ultimate reality. Um, there's a lot of references to it in, in the Bible. And you hear people through meditation or prayer or, um, you know, hallucinogenic experiences talking about this ultimate reality. Do you think that the, the human concept of God and this ultimate reality, do you think that that is when our perceptions and our human limitations 
that you're talking about have been removed and we're seeing the world or at least feeling the world for what it really is for that small glimpse of time. What are your thoughts about that? Well, yeah, it's a complex subject, but, uh, you know, I think that in the process of meditation, one of the things that at least in some forms of meditation you're doing is letting go of your concepts, your preconceptions. And in some sense, what you're doing in in my language is letting go of this interface. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. So that that can be very. I mean, I I actually meditate a, a bit myself, and I find it very very helpful to me as a scientist, simply because uh, it it loosens the grasp of the my interface on, <laughs> on my conceptions. It, right. You know, yeah. and, and you know, it's very very hard for us to think outside the box of our perceptions, and yet it's absolutely necessary. When we find that you know space time is doomed. Uh, and everything we think is framed in the notions of space-time, we do need some kind of help to think outside that box of perception that we've evolved with. It's, it's, kept, you know, it's done a good job to keep us alive, but now it's doing a good job of hiding reality, whatever that might be, from us. And so it's very helpful in that respect. Um, my theory that I'm developing of consciousness that I call the theory of conscious agents, and I've, I've got a paper online where people want they want to can can actually read the mathematical model. So the mathematical model is free. It's available online, and you know I can give you a link at some point if you want. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know what it says, but I'll go look at it. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. There's some mathematics. There's, there's some intuitions in it as well. But Great. but the idea is that you can that this model of conscious agents. It turns out from the mathematics that conscious agents, uh, when they combine, they form new conscious agents. And so you could imagine taking bigger and bigger combinations and getting closer and closer to something that you might want to call the biggest agent. Although it's, I think mathematically, I, I haven't been able to show if there is a biggest agent or not. I, I will have to think about that. But if there were, then you might have something you know, that, that's you know, sniffing in the neighborhood of what some people would call God. Although you know, the, the word God itself isn't, isn't very helpful because it means so many different things in right. so many different so it's not a very as a scientist it's 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 a very unhelpful term except as a general pointer but there's nothing rigorous about it exactly more just the, that sense of um like you're saying in the meditative state of like what is going on here I seem to be removing my interface and seeing something with more substance um that, so yeah that's right that, that's that. right um and then you mentioned how you know our reality is completely within at this point our consciousness and our perception of the reality and the perception of the reality on our consciousness. So if we're able to alter our consciousness and, you know, some people will say, well, you just need to look at things differently. Or after this accident, I see the world differently. Are, are they truly, I mean, are we are all capable of literally and figuratively altering the reality and our interface, as you put it in this world? Is, is that a, is that a science from a scientific point of view? Is that entirely possible or plausible at this point? It, it is. It's certainly possible to change our, our realities. And and the, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, you can then ask, you know, are the changes functional or not? Yeah, are they right. are they helpful? So someone who's on an acid trip but thinks he can fly and jumps out <laughs> of a window, well, that you know, he changed his reality all right, but um, it it wasn't his new interface um, was not adaptive. Um, and, and that's that's sort of the point is that there, there of course, there are many ways to have an adaptive interface, you know, adaptive set of perceptions. And it may be that with meditation, um, you can change up your interface in ways that are adaptive 
um, and help you help you to see new aspects of, of reality that you you know were unaware of before. Um, I think that meditation and science can work hand in hand. I mean, for me, one of the things about science is that it it really helps us to not fool ourselves. It, I mean, it's very easy for us to BS ourselves, and and in in the the working of science, you have you know theories and experiments and other scientists, and so there's this feedback that helps helps us to you know discover our own biases. Often, it's not me discovering what's wrong with my theory; it's somebody else pointing out what's wrong with my theory. But right. but nevertheless, it's 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 the group of scientists working together that that help us as a group, um, you know, get past our our wrong assumptions, our biases, our prejudices, and try to move forward without deluding ourselves. So, I mean, there, there's good reason on evolutionary grounds to believe that we're deeply self-deceived, um, that, that our beliefs about our own motives, about why we do what we do, are um, have been shaped by natural selection to be, I mean, not, not just simply to you know, ignore the truth, but to actively tell us falsehoods about ourselves. So that we can actually act in ways that are beneficial to us, we can lie effectively right. and, and and benefit from it. Um, you know, this Robert Trivers has some very interesting work on this. You know, in, in terms of the evolution of of cooperation and and cheating. And if you know, we're our species has you know benefited by cooperating. We you know during the Pleistocene, you and I go out and hunt, and at the end of the day, we come back, and you know if if you didn't quite get enough and I got I got more than enough, then you know, I can share or vice versa. Yeah. But you know, if everybody cooperates, that's great. I mean, it's very, very um, adaptive for the species. But in that case, if one person decides to cheat and you know go out and you know pretend to have spent the day hunting and gathering, but instead sat by the river and fanned themselves and relaxed, yeah. and then come back and say, you know what, I had a tough day. Can I have some of yours? <laughs> Well, that's actually a very, very fit strategy. You you will survive and, and reproduce, and then you'll have other offspring that are also freeloaders. And pretty soon, you know, as the percentage of freeloaders gets bigger and bigger, then that kind of cheating behavior becomes less and less fit until you can think about it in the extreme. If everybody's cheating and no one's working, then everybody starves. Exactly. So clearly, a strategy that was fit when it's low frequency in the population becomes entirely dysfunctional completely unfit when it's high frequency. And so then what you have is that if the population is going to survive, there's going to have to be mutations somewhere among the cooperators to detect the cheaters, to figure out who's lying. Is this a IRS? Are you a spokesman for that? Uh, right. Yes, that's, like, <laughs> that's exactly right. We, we Exactly right. And there, and there is a logic, right? I mean, it, there's a little bit of logic. If I did this for you today, then you need to do this for for me tomorrow, right? So there's a little bit of logic that comes with this. So we evolve a little bit of, of logic, a little bit of mathematics in this, and and then you get an arms race because now the cheaters can become more sophisticated at lying, and then the cooperators need to become more sophisticated at detecting them. And Trivers invites us to consider what would be the ultimate end game in all this. Who's the best liar? Well, it's the one who doesn't even know that they're lying. They don't betray it with shifty eyes, blushing, body posture. They they believe it. It's like George Costanza and Seinfeld. You know, it's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah. yeah. 
they kind bought of, into their own lie, which makes it almost not even a lie, I guess. And so that's that's way. exactly right. And, and so as a result, we've been shaped by natural selection to be deeply deceived about our own motives and about so most of what I believe about what I'm doing and why is utterly false and it's not an accident. I've evolved on purpose to be deceived about that. <laughs> so science uh. is there to help us through uh, to you know the, the understanding of you know nature in spite of the fact that we're deeply self-deceived. <laughs> So do you think that – is that what Bob Marley meant by free yourself of mental slavery to get over your own self-deceptions? I mean this this concept yep. of, of getting past these limitations of natural selection? I mean – I think absolutely. We – you know, it's it's hard for us to see our own limitations. We feel fairly free, right? And I see a world of space, time, and objects, and I feel pretty free, and I don't feel constrained, and I certainly don't seem deceived. But we can see it more easily with other organisms, right? Because they also have their own interfaces that are different from ours. Right. So sometimes we can see, uh, you know, holes in their interface and, and limitations of their interface that uh, they obviously apparently can't see. So, uh, you know, one thing I like to mention is the the jewel beetle. Um, oh, is that Western the? I think I saw your. Is that from your TED talk? Yeah, I've yeah, got that in my yeah. TED. That's right. That's a great example. Yeah. So, so that beetle. In Western Australia, I mean, it's um, dimpled, glossy, and brown, and the males fly and the females are flightless. And the males fly around looking for a female. And if, and if he finds one, he alights and mates. But um, some, some guys have you know, found uh, that they like these um, stubbies, these beers that they have in Australia. And the, and the bottles that are called stubbies are you know, dimpled, glossy, and just the right shade of brown to grab the fancy of these beetles and they, they you know so men will throw these stubbies out into the, into the outback and the male jewel beetles just flock all over them trying to mate and the species almost went extinct because females weren't nearly as interesting as these bottles so even while these male beetles were crawling full body contact on the bottles they couldn't discover their error and so, you know, Australia actually had to change the color and dimples of the bottles to save a species. <laughs> and, and so here's a case where you realize, okay, I mean, the, that beetle really, the male beetles weren't seeing the truth. They didn't really know what a female beetle is. All they had was some little hack, some little algorithm, some little trick. You know, a, a female is anything dimpled, glossy, and brown, the, the bigger the better. And and that was that was their trick, and and so as a result, yeah, and it, that makes sense from the point of view of evolution. We, you have to do things on the as cheaply as possible, mm -hmm. because calories, you know, spending too many calories is not fit. Uh, you know, it's you know, if if someone, if a competitor can do the same thing as you with less calories, they're going to win. <laughs> and so there's always selection pressures um, to only be as intelligent as you need to be, and no more intelligent. Right. And by the way, that, that uh, applies to humans. There's good evidence now from you know, human fossils that our brains have shrunk dramatically in the last 20 to 30,000 years. We've lost essentially the volume of a tennis ball of, of brain matter. Um, and in this the, is even – Sorry, even, in the neocortex on the out? Uh, in the entire brain, oh, in the, so the entire cortex. The entire brain, including the neocortex. So, you know, at, at this 
from an evolutionary point of view, our brain, our, our brain size is in evolutionary freefall. It's 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 falling like you know meteoric speed. We're, Why we're, is it? Well, the the evidence suggests that the decrease in the fossils is greatest where there's the biggest social groups. And the it it actually makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. If you're a hunter gatherer and you have to do everything for yourself to stay alive, so you're you're pretty much alone, or just you know a couple people with you, you know, a few people, and everybody has to pretty much do everything to stay alive, then then the selection pressures to be smart are higher. But if you have a social system like we have now, mm-hmm. in which you know I can go to Trader Joe's. Uh, and get anything that I need to eat, uh, even if I have an IQ of 70, then then that's going to be allowed by evolution, right? People with an IQ of 70 will be able to have kids, and 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 um, so that's so our so this has been it actually actually makes sense that you only have as much brain as you need and no more, and so the fact that we have a big social network, uh, you know, social safety net, yeah. Permits um, us to, you know, it, so it's 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 of course good to have the social safety net. I mean, no one wants to have people, you know, suffering because they're they're not as you know smart or whatever. Exactly. But but you know, on the other hand, evolution is inexorable, and um, so if, if this the estimates are if, if our brains keep plummeting in about twenty thousand to thirty thousand years, we'll be back to the size of Homo erectus. Really? Yeah. Now I wonder if if evolution in some weird way, because we do seem to be advancing still, I wonder if we are moving away from solitary consciousness and, and solitary intelligence to a more collective consciousness type of, of world. It, it could be, or it could be that it's um, we're moving more to a social organization like insects, right? So in some sense with ants, it's not the individual ant that's intelligent. It's the it's the whole colony. Right. And in some sense, that's the same way with our brains. Our brains are just, as as some people put it, a, a bag of bugs, right? It's you know it's, we call them neurons, but they're they're just a bunch of organisms <clears throat> that have agreed to cooperate. So right. your your brain is a social network of organisms that have agreed to cooperate. Um, they've laid down their arms, and but that's what we are. We're we're just a social social group, and ants are the same way. So the, the individual ants are like the neurons of our brain. <clears throat> so. Wow. Different way to think about things. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Woo, damn, yeah. Um, my mind was completely fucked after I got done talking to him. I was way out of my league, um, but I try and keep up. Make sure and tune in next week. I got the next 25 minutes of this conversation, and we delve even deeper, if you can believe it. And he talks about his own personal hallucinogenic experiences, about anxiety, and much deeper into this concept of reality as we know it. So thanks for tuning in, guys, and make sure next Tuesday, that is the, what is that, April 5th or something like that, the 4th, I will be posting the second half to this conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Have a good rest of the week. Leave me a review on iTunes. Check out alexstar.com. Do, 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 do. I will see you guys next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.